0: Today we begin a seven-part sermon series simply entitled The Seven Last Words. Each week we're going to examine one of those last statements of Jesus from the cross. Today I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Luke chapter 23. Once you find found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 23, I want to read for you verses 32 to 34. Luke chapter 23, let's begin at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, obedience, and understanding of his faithful word. You may be seated. It is not surprising that Jesus had something to say from the cross. Everyone who's ever been executed by crucifixion always had something initially to say from the cross. It was Seneca, the first century Roman philosopher, who said that everyone who's ever been crucified shouted, shrieked, screamed from their crosses. They would curse the day they were born, cuss their mothers. They would throw racial expletives and slurs at the executioners. They would even spit upon the people that were looking upon them. Everybody had something to say. And the first word that Jesus spoke stands in stark contrast to what anybody expected. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The ministry of Jesus begins with a prayer and here it seemingly ends with a prayer. In Luke chapter 3 verse 21, Jesus begins his ministry on the banks of the Jordan River. We read that many people were being baptized by John and Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Here, three years later, Jesus is precariously dangling from a cross between two thieves. And in that predicament, he offers a prayer. And this time he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I suspect that in this moment, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. He could have spoken and selected some well-placed lightning bolts. He could have caused the earth to open and swallow all of his enemies. And certainly, he could have come down off the cross in dramatic fashion. Don't think for one second that a few rusty spikes are able to withhold divine sovereignty. At any moment, Jesus could have miraculously come down from the cross, but instead... He simply prays, Father, forgive them. Have you ever stopped to think about that this is the first and only time when Jesus ever made such a request of God the Father? What I mean is, is this, that up until this moment, it has been Jesus himself who's always declared forgiveness. Yet here in this moment, he says, Father, you forgive them. In fact, the fact that Jesus would normally Declare forgiveness. That got him in a heap of trouble with a lot of the religious establishment of his day. Many times people would think to themselves and even verbalize, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And here's this redneck rabbi from Galilee and he's declaring your sins are forgiven. For example, you may recall that to that sleazy sinful woman who crashed the party of Simon the Pharisee, she came in unannounced and uninvited. Yet obviously she was broken over her sin for she uh, poured expensive perfume on the head of Jesus. She wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. And Jesus looked at her and said, Your sins are forgiven. The other The cronies of Simon, they begin to say to themselves and to one another, who does this guy think he is? If he really was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him and groping him, and he would not allow her to do that. But clearly, he's not a good prophet because he doesn't even know the type of woman that is uh, all over him. And Jesus just simply said, woman, your sins are forgiven. On another occasion, Jesus said to a paralytic, get up. Take up your mat and walk. Your sins are forgiven. The other people that had gathered in the house, they began to think to themselves, and Jesus knew their thoughts, for they were thinking to themselves, who is this guy? He's blaspheming. Nobody talks like this. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, said, which is easier, to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then turned to the paralytic and he said, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the young man jumped to his feet, maybe for the very first time in his life. He bent over, picked up his mat, rolled it up, stuck it under his arm, and he walked out fully forgiven in full view of everybody. Normally, it's Jesus himself who personally declares forgiveness upon somebody. Yet in this moment, at the very beginning of the Calvary experience, it is Jesus who says, Father, you forgive them. Now, why is this significant? It's significant because you and I cannot understand the cross of Christ apart from substitutionary atonement. I realize that's a big phrase, but substitutionary atonement simply means this, that Jesus died in our place for our sins that in this very moment, Jesus is identifying with sinful humanity. He is our representative. And as the human representative, he's crying out to the Father, Father, forgive them. He is embodying what Isaiah foretold 700 years prior in uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, the suffering servant song, when he says that the suffering servant will come and he will be counted among the transgressors for he bore the sins of many. In this moment, Jesus is bearing your sin and mine upon himself. And in this moment, he is our human representative. He takes our place. He takes our sin upon himself. You cannot understand the cross of Christ apart from substitutionary atonement. All the junk, all the disobedience, all the hatred, all of the hostility towards God that you have in your life, I have in my life, was meted out against Jesus. And Jesus is our representative. He's about to secure and seal the sweet swap of salvation. Because in that moment of Calvary, the just will be declared unjust so that we who are unjust might be declared just in the sight of God. The innocent one is going to be declared guilty so that we who are guilty before God may be declared innocent in the sight of the Lord. The righteous one becomes raunchy so that we who are raunchy might be declared righteous in God's sight. The pure one becomes perverted so that we who are perverted may be declared pure in God's sight both now and forevermore. Right now Jesus is about to seal the deal of the sweet swap of salvation. He's got to identify himself with humanity. He is the human representative and in that moment he says father you forgive them because they don't know what they're doing father you forgive them in this moment when you expect expletives to fly that would cause sailors to blush jesus offers a sublime f-bomb jesus says forgive Father, forgive, because they don't know what they're doing. This is a holy F-bomb. Father, forgive. Now, do you know how good forgiveness feels? If your spouse has ever said to you, I forgive you, even though you've wronged me, then you know how good forgiveness feels. If you've ever disobeyed and disappointed your parents, only to have them turn to you and say, I forgive you, then you know how good forgiveness feels. If you've ever been pulled over for speeding by an officer only to pull away without a ticket, then you know how good forgiveness feels. If you ever owed a friend some money only to have that friend look at you and say, don't worry about it, I got it, then you know how good forgiveness feels. We forgive each other every day and nobody has to die for it, right? Right? Somebody asks us, will you forgive me? And we say, yes, we don't withhold forgiveness. We extend forgiveness and nobody has to die. Yet in this moment, we got a sneaking suspicion that the reason Jesus is on the cross is because he has to seal the forgiveness for, for us from God. Because all of those earthbound human examples, they pale in comparison to what Jesus is asking the father for. When he says, Father, forgive, that word forgive that he uses means to pardon, to remove guilt, to drop the charges as if to never bring them up again. You and I can't do that. We cannot remove anybody's guilt. We can't even remove our own guilt. We try to remove our own guilt, but we're not very good at it. But we can't even sufficiently remove our own guilt, let alone remove anybody else's guilt. And many times even though we try best we can, there are times when we will throw up the charge back into the face of the person that asked us to forgive them. We are pretty lousy when it comes to forgiveness. Jesus is not asking God to be lousy with forgiveness. He's saying, Father, forgive them. What I'm asking for is for you to pardon them, to remove all their guilt as far as the East is from the West, and I want you to drop all the charges so the criminal is declared innocent. I want you to drop the charges as if to never bring up their dirty deeds in their face again this is the forgiveness that jesus is asking for this is sublime forgiveness now listen if you know how good parental forgiveness feels if you know how good spousal forgiveness feels if you know how good sibling forgiveness feels can you imagine how great sovereign forgiveness feels for jesus To be able to declare, you are forgiven. Father, forgive them. When Jesus is asking the Father to forgive, he's asking, remove their sin, don't ever bring it back up again, cast it as far as the east is from the west. He's not asking God to sweep it under the carpet. Because God is holy, penalty for your sin and mine has to be paid. Yet because God is gracious, He says, I'll pay it for you. So he sent his son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our substitutionary atonement, to take the whipping that we deserve and to absorb upon himself an eternity's worth of our condemnation. And it was squarely placed upon him. Father, forgive them. I asked today, who's the them that he's talking about? Father, forgive them. Who's the them? Is it? the soldiers that arrested him, the guards that beat him, the disciples that deserted him? Is it the crowd that cried out, crucify him? Is it the politician that washed his hands of him named Pilate? Is it the Pharisees that gloated over him? Is it the religious leaders that sneered at him? Is it the other individuals that mocked him? Is it the criminals that were adjacent to him? Who is he talking about? Who is the them? Father, forgive them. Who's the them? There's a lot of discussion about this. A lot of people differ on who the them may be. Some say it's only the them that are standing there. Others say, no, no, it's the them of the Jewish nation. And I want to submit to you that the them includes you and me. Oftentimes we speak of them to distinguish it from us, don't we? We speak of them, 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 them are not us, us, us. Because many times we say the them, that's the bad guys. Us, we're the good guys, right? Many times that's how we verbalize this. That's how we distinguish this. The them versus the us. But I want to submit to you this morning. That we have to include us in the them. Because Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Who's he talking to? He's talking to all of God's enemies. And since I am a sinner, and you are too, and we're born into sin, we are declaring war against a holy God. We're declaring war against God. We are Adversaries of God, we are at war with God. We uh, have violent actions towards God's holiness. We are sinners, and since we are sinners, and He says, "Father, forgive them," the them must include you and me. For in order, in order for us to be forgiven, we must have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our sin. Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. What does He mean by that? Is somehow He's saying that ignorance is innocence? They don't know what they're doing. Just just forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No, I think he's saying they don't know the enormity of their sin. They don't know how bad off they are. You know, we don't know how bad off we are. We think to ourselves, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little sin. It's just a minor character flaw. It's just a minor mistake. It's not that big of a deal. It is a vicious attack against the holiness of God. We cannot withstand God's holiness. We take ourselves in all of our sinful condition and we act as if we can stand before God and tell him and dictate unto him what he can do, can't do, what he will do or won't do. Oh, my friends, we do not know how bad off we are. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. All of this begs the question that since Jesus secures our great salvation at the cross, how do we receive this forgiveness? How can it be applied to my life? How can it be applied to your life? If you acknowledge that you are a sinner before God and that you're in need of His salvation and ultimately His forgiveness, how can that forgiveness be applied unto your life? I think the answer is threefold. First, I think that you have to admit that you're a sinner. Don't minimize your sin. Don't say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's just an occasional glance at the computer. It's not that big of a deal. It's just two drinks before I go home from work. It's not that big of a deal. It's just an occasional flying off at the handle every once in a while when somebody just pushed my buttons. It's just occasional, sometimes a little bit Of gossip, not that big of a deal. My friends, you and I cannot minimize our sin. We also can't rationalize our sin. I learned this past week that rationalize is really just telling yourself rational lies. When you rationalize your sin, what you're doing is you're telling yourself rational lies. It's not that big of a deal. I'm okay. Do you see what other people are doing? I'm not as bad as anybody else. All of that lies before God. We are just rationalizing lies. We cannot compromise our sin either. Say, well, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. So let's just lower the standard. Let's just help God out. Because God's got this big old standard of perfection. Nobody can rise up to it. Nobody can live it. So let's just lower the standard for him. Let's just compromise. My friends, we can't do any of that. We've got to admit to God that we're a sinner. We've got to agree with him that what he says about us is true. That we are sinful. If we claim to be without sin, we make him out to be a liar and the truth is not in us. That's spoken to us by the beloved John if we claim to be without sin, the truth is not in us. So we have to admit to God that we are a sinner. We have to accept responsibility. We can't play the blame game. It didn't work in the Garden of Eden. It's not going to work for us here in Pelham. We cannot play the blame game. You know, Adam said, it's not my fault. It's Eve's fault. Eve said, it's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. We can't play the blame game. We've got to do more like David did. David said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I'm not going to blame anybody else. It was Rick Warren who said that the way you spell blame is be lame. Y'all will get that here in a second. That's how you spell blame. Be lame. That whenever you are blaming somebody else, really, you're just being lame before the Lord and not accepting your responsibility. So you got to admit your sin. you got to accept responsibility. But third, you simply have to ask for forgiveness just ask him. You don't have to beg. You don't have to plead. You don't have to make deals with God. Just ask him. He will forgive you because he wants to forgive you. He is rich in mercy. He is abounding in love. He wants to forgive you. You've got a a problem, a a hang up, a a habit in your life. You've got some issue and you say, I don't know what to do with this. Just ask God for forgiveness. His forgiveness is instantaneous. His forgiveness is complete. His forgiveness is thorough. What sins were covered on the blood of of Christ? All of them. All of your sins. From Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, the apostle Paul says that he made us alive in Christ. And he bore us all of our sins. All of them, past, present, and future. All of our sins were nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. So how do you receive this forgiveness? Ask. It was John R. W. Stott who said the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. You come to God in faith you come to him believing that what he says is true. You are a sinner and he is the only savior. You come to him in truth. You acknowledge your sin. You trust him. You turn from your sin. You repent of your sin and you uh, turn unto him and he will save you. That's how you receive this great glorious forgiveness. Now let me just say, if you're here today and you never asked God to save you from your sin, Today, the prayer of Jesus can be applied to your life. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. But let me ask you this. If you are in Christ, which many of you are, you're already a believer. You've already trusted Jesus for Savior, as Savior and Lord. So let me ask you this. How then are you supposed to live in light of that forgiveness? If you've been forgiven, then how are you supposed to live? Well, Jesus told a story one day to answer that question. The apostle Peter came up to him and said, "Uh, Master, how many times do I have to forgive my brother who wrongs me? Up to seven? Now, he thought that he was going above and beyond what was required because according to the first century rabbinical law, it was taught that a person had to forgive up to three times. So Peter really thought he was going to impress Jesus by more than doubling what was uh, the custom. The custom was three times. He said, what about seven times? He expected Jesus to pat him on the back and say, boy, you're getting it. That's great. You forgive up to seven times and everything's wonderful. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'll tell you, not seven, but 77 times. Some translations render it not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, regardless of whether Jesus meant 77 or whether he meant 490 times, there is some debate. This much we all can agree on, that Jesus does not want any of us to walk around with Excel spreadsheets of all the offenses of everybody who's ever offended us. And when we get to a certain number and a certain threshold, Katie barred the door, we don't have to forgive them anymore. No, I think what Jesus is telling Peter is that this number seven is the number of completion. You read the Bible, you realize it's the number of completion. So Peter, you forgive until everything is complete. A careful reading of the scripture reveals that everything's not going to be complete until Jesus comes back. So what is Jesus telling Peter? Peter, you forgive until I come back. You forgive until I make everything complete. You forgive until I right all the wrongs and establish my kingdom. You complete as many times as somebody needs you to forgive. So if somebody comes up to you and says, will you forgive me? The answer, Christian, is yes. You have to. Oh, but pastor, I don't want to. I don't care. You have to. It's not about the, I want to do this. Uh, it's this, hey, If if a brother hurts you or a sister hurts you and they come to you and they say, will you forgive me? You have to say yes. Because you forgive until Jesus comes back. Now, Jesus, who's a masterful preacher, drives home his sermon with a story. He said there was a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. That settlement process began. The king called in the first servant and It was revealed that the first servant owed the king 10,000 talents. In those days, a talent had nothing to do with giftedness or ability. A talent was the highest form of financial currency. Nobody knows exactly how much financial indebtedness is 10,000 talents. Many people believe that one talent equals 60 denarii. A denarius is an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. So if one talent equals 60 days worth of wages, then 10,000 talents must equal at least 600,000 days of debt. Now, for those of you who want to do some quick math, 600,000 days is 1,643 years worth of wages. That's like us saying he owed a gazillion dollars. That's a lot of money. You don't get this much indebtedness just by running up a a couple of credit cards and maxing them out. I mean, this is gross negligence. This is probably criminal activity. I don't have the foggiest idea how somebody gets this much debt, but this man had 1,643 years worth of debt that he owed to the master. Is he gonna be able to pay that back? No. No. I don't know anybody who lives to 1,643 years, and even if they did, they'd have to have some money to live on. There's no way he can pay back that much money. So the king does the only thing that he can do. He orders for this man to be sold into slavery. Not only this man, but also this man's wife and this man's children. Not just the family sold to make money off of them, but also all their possessions had to be sold as well. And even if you accumulate the sum of that money from the selling of them as servants and all the things that they possessed, there's no way that the master could recoup a fraction of that money. But he gave the verdict. When the servant heard it, he fell on his face before the master. He said, King, if you give me some time, I'll pay back everything I owe you. He knows he can't do that. The king knows he can't do that. He says, please have mercy upon me. Please be patient with me. Please, I'll pay back everything. So the king took pity on his servant. That's a great word, pity. He took pity on his servant. What does that look like? What does that mean? It meant this in this story. He said, not only am I going to give you your life back, I'm not going to sell you. And not only just your life, but I'm not going to sell Uh, the life of your wife or your children. You can have them as well. And beyond that, I'm also not going to sell one thing that you own. You can keep it all. In addition to all of that, you know what the king did? In one fell swoop, what the king said was, I have canceled all of your debt. What? 10,000 talents, 600,000 days of wages. That's like 1,643 years worth of debt and indebtedness to the king. In one moment, the king canceled the entire debt of the servant. How do you think the servant responded? He did more than that. I promise Think about this. This man has a debt he cannot pay. There's no way in a thousand lives could he pay this much debt. And in one moment, the king canceled his debt to say that he'd be overjoyed or thankful or relieved. That just begins to express the depth of of love that this servant must have for the king, right? Can you imagine? You still can't imagine this, but can you imagine this? This is overwhelming. And then Jesus tells a story as he continues That something appalling takes place when this servant doesn't even get off the palace property. In fact, it is so appalling, I don't even want to tell you. But I'm going to. But I don't really want to tell you. Because it is so embarrassing. It is so appalling what this servant does. Always keep in mind, he had an enormous debt that was canceled and forgiven. He doesn't even get off the palace property. He finds another servant who owes him 100 denarii. Once again, a denarius is an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. So it's 100 days. It's three months. You think to yourself, well, I mean, that's a debt. It's, it's not a massive debt. It could be paid off. It could be worked off. And then you think to yourself, I mean, comparatively speaking, that's peanuts, right? I mean, that's nothing. I mean, you have a guy who had 100 days of debt versus one who had 600,000 days of debt. One who had three months of debt versus the one who had 1,643 years of debt. It's nothing. What do you expect the one who had the massive debt forgiven to do? What do you expect him to do? You expect him to go up and say, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. You have no clue what the king just did for me. What he did for me, it's not a problem. Don't even worry about it. But what does he do? He doesn't do that. He grabs his fellow servant by the shirt collar. He pulls him close and begins to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. I'm entitled to this. This is money that you have taken from me. I deserve it. You pay it back. If till you can pay it back, I'm going to throw you into debtor's prison. He does what he's legally enabled to do. He orders for this man to be thrown into prison until the man can pay off a 100 days of debt. Does that not embarrass you? Does that not sound crazy? It's appalling what he did apparently this was a small town because news of this gets back to the king and Jesus said when the king heard this he called for the first servant who had the massive debt retired he said you wicked servant who do you think you are What do you think you just did I retired your debt I forgave your indebtedness simply because you asked me to and then you go and, and you refuse to forgive somebody who has done something rather trivial in your life? He ordered for that man to be thrown into prison and tortured. And Jesus said that the king said, you throw him into prison until he pays back everything he owes me. What the king is saying is that this man's going to be in prison for the rest of his life because there's no way he can pay it back. He knows it. the king knows it. Everybody knows it. He's going to be tortured for the rest of his life. And then Jesus adds this commentary to the story that he just told. This is how my father in heaven will treat any of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is how God is going to treat any of us who are in Christ if we don't forgive others who've offended us sincerely from our hearts. Because if you have been forgiven of your sin, if you know the sweet swap of salvation, if you know that Jesus paid it all and all to him you owe, if you realize that Jesus paid a sin debt that you could not pay, then you have been forgiven a gajillion dollars. It's like you, you have this massive debt that's been wiped away. And Jesus says, if you have been showered forgiveness, then you must show forgiveness to others. This is how my father will treat you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. You can replace the word brother with mom or dad or sister or brother or boss or neighbor or coworker or friend or pastor or church member. You can replace the word brother with any of those. This is how God will treat you unless you forgive. How do you live in light of the massive forgiveness that God has given to you? If God had showered forgiveness upon you, then you must forgive others. It was John MacArthur who said it this way. Never are you more like God than when you forgive. Never are you more like God than when you forgive. People say, hey, I want to be like God. I want to be godly. Really? Okay, you are never more like God than when you forgive. He went on to write, a relationship that deteriorates. It deteriorates not because of the offense, but because of lack of forgiveness. Stop and think about that. That any relationship in your life, Christian, any relationship in your life, if it deteriorates, it deteriorates not because of the offense that was done to you. It deteriorates. Because of your lack of forgiveness towards the one who offended you. Never are you more like God than when you forgive. The invitation this morning is twofold. Number one, if you've never received this glorious forgiveness from God and salvation, today you can hear Jesus pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You receive this forgiveness by faith you admit that you're a sinner. You accept your responsibility. You ask for forgiveness and God who is rich in mercy will give it to you. But it's a twofold imitation. So if you're here today and you are a believer, you've already had the blood of Christ applied to you. Let me ask you, is there anybody in your life you need to forgive? Is there anybody in your life that you need to forgive? somebody who's wronged you, somebody who's spoken ill of you, somebody who's done something that you don't even want to verbalize, you don't even want to communicate, but you harbor resentment in your life for that individual. Is there somebody that you need to forgive today? If that person is in this room, then during the invitation, I want you to go to him, and I want you to go to her, and I want you to make amends. What that's going to look like Some parents are going to come to their children. Some children, students need to go to their parents. An adult that uh, finds herself in the balcony just may need to come down to somebody who's always planted here on the floor. Don't minimize your sin, don't rationalize your sin, don't compromise your sin. Never are you more like God than when you forgive. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Pastor, I'm lucky because that person's not in this room right now. (laughs) Friend, if that's you and that person's not in the room right now, then before the sun sets on today, you call them. If they're in close enough distance and proximity, you go visit them. Because... God has showered forgiveness upon you. Therefore, you must forgive the one who's wronged you. Maybe the person that's hurt you so deeply is no longer living. In this moment of invitation, I just want you to pray to God, and I want you to speak to your heavenly daddy as if that person was right beside. I just want you to verbalize it, what you need to say, because I'm telling you, When Jesus is dangling precariously on a cross of wood between two thieves, this Calvary experience that's going to seal your salvation at the very outset, the very first thing he says, you expect something horrific. Most people would curse. Most people would cuss. Most people would call down racial slurs. Most people would say expletives. that would make a sailor blush. But Jesus, oh, Jesus stands in stark contrast of all of that. He says, what's your greatest need is, what you need more than anything else, you need forgiveness Father forgive them because they don't know what they're doing Father help them that as you forgive them, they will forgive others because never are you more like God than when you forgive Heavenly Father we bow before you We give you this invitation, and Father, we pray that you will move and help us to move. Father, we love you. Guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.